From the home of creative writing on the internet, live and uncensored, this is Latopia After Dark. Featuring a fusion of low-down gossip and lofty debate. All hosted by Latopia's Peter Cox. A very warm welcome to Latopia After Dark. We've had some great reactions to last week's show, and I forgot to mention last week that we'd love to hear from you about your take on our discussions. So either send an email to podcast at litopia.com, or if you're feeling particularly techy, send an MP3 file to the same address. No more than 45 seconds, please. Last week, we gave Amazon's Kindle a good going over, and we're not finished with the subject yet. We'll take another look at it quite soon, when we can assess what kind of initial impact it's made. This week is the turn of another so-called saviour of the publishing industry to get the high-octane attention of our panel of writers. The rise of the social network. Are you on Facebook? Would you even admit to being on MySpace? Mm. And how can publishers use sites like these to sell books? All this plus Harry Potter in the dock and Philip Pullman goes to hell in this edition of Litopia After Dark. Now let's meet the panel. From the Venice of America, Fort Lauderdale, we have Donna Borman. Donna's first book is You've Been Served, A Writer's Guide to the Courtroom. Due to be published in December 2008, her legal practice has been named one of the top 500 plaintiff's attorneys in the US. And she's currently writing several children and young adult manuscripts. Donna, are you a Facebook female or a MySpace Ms.? I am absolutely not. I'm too darned old for that stuff. I'm more of a Latopia and uh, you write on person. Cool. Also working on a novel for the young adult market is Dave Bartram, who lectures in fine art in England's West Country. Are you on Facebook or MySpace, Dave? Uh, I did once create a MySpace account, then I lost interest. Um, but I, I do have actually tried Second Life. Hmm. And uh, my avatar on there is Oscuridad Barbosa, if anybody's into such things. And after about half an hour, it descends into the most crushing boredom you have possibly imagined. Yeah, that's what I suspected. Beverly. Beverly Gray is our next panellist from Indianapolis, and she's currently finishing a fantasy novel. Are you a Facebook aficionado or a MySpace maven, Bev? I am neither. However, I do have an avatar on Virtual Magic Kingdom. Which is Disney's little uh, VMK thing? <laughs> wow! What is it? What is the avatar? Um, it's a uh, little Tinker Blue. It, it's just a little girl dressed up in a princess dress. Oh, that, that's fun. You get to build rooms and stuff. Yeah, wonderful. Back to England now. Richard Howes is presently a student at the highly prestigious National Academy of Writing, and last week he was probably the most bullish member of our panel about Amazon's ebook reader, the Kindle. Rich, Facebook fellow or MySpace male? Uh, I, I'm into Facebook myself. I, I couldn't get on with, with the MySpace. It, it seems too out there, mm. too obvious, too available. Yeah. Um, I'm personally just interested in meeting up with old friends from school, um, you know, nostalgia and the such like. So uh, I've stuck with Facebook. Mm. And this week we have a special bonus for you, a brand new guest, Brian Clegg. 
is the author of many successful popular science books, including the best-selling Brief History of Infinity, and recently published by St. Martin's Press, New York, The God Effect. Brian is an unmitigated polymath, combining interests as wide-ranging as Tudor and Elizabethan church music and bleeding-edge technology writing. Brian, Facebook or MySpace? I am on Facebook. Uh, fairly recently, to be honest, I publicised a book, uh, but I have found it useful already in that I, I've met up with somebody who I haven't spoken to for 20 years, so uh, oh. I'm quite enthusiastic at the moment. Brilliant. And that's the peril. Now let's get those brains into overdrive. MySpace is the world's largest social network with 110 million active members. It's like a country twice the size of um, the UK. Facebook has 55 million, that's about the size of Britain, and Bebo has 39 million, which is Poland. A few days ago, MySpace and Bebo joined a Google-led alliance called Open Social, which is an attempt to promote a common set of standards for software developers who write programs for social networks. The aim is to create one vast meta-social network of way over 200 million people or more, and some people are saying that it's Google's attempt to be a Facebook killer. Now, publishers are being drawn to social networking sites like these, partly because they deliver such enormous numbers of punters, but mainly because social networking could be a powerful way to get people talking to their friends about books. And that's the main way in which books have traditionally been sold, by word of mouth. But can Facebook really sell your book? Or is it just fool's gold? Lots of effort for no return. So, panel, what do we think about all this? Let's kick off with Rich. I... Uh installed the uh the the attachments to facebook such as your old artists i like and songs dedicated to me and the super wall and of course they, they've got a good one on their four books which is uh the uh, bookshelf the, the virtual bookshelf which tells you uh which books you're reading which books you've read which books you intend on reading and uh, all of your friends uh, that have the virtual bookshelf uh, come up on, on your list as well so you can see what they're reading. Um, as far as actually going to look at what they're reading and getting interested in other people, um, it's, it's a bit of a stretch. You know, I don't have that much time to, to commit to my own reading as well as my own learning as well as my own life, let alone to finding out what, what other people uh, are into. But I, I think it, it's certainly got a place in... Um, developing that that level of hey this is a really good book uh, i know a lot of people on facebook do actually write the book reviews i personally don't bother um because they don't need a hundred thousand reviews for one book it's, it's <laughs> but but it's it's there it's built in and it's it's ready to go whether whether I, I think publishers can can actually make make it work i don't know i think you've got to consider also they have uh, things like groups where a publisher can uh, get together an area that's particularly about a group, a book. Um, now, I'm not sure how much that's going to pull people in when a book's starting, but once a book has pulled up a little bit of a fan base, it, it's a good way to get people together who are interested. Um, and I can see that sort of community, particularly if you've got a series coming up, you know, if you've got the first book out, you want to get people interested in the rest. I can see that being quite useful to publishers as a way of pulling people in. Yeah, and the interesting um, question arises there, who owns the group? That's true. Yeah, um, a very good question. And, and certainly also the question, why not do it on the author's website? Why not run the book groups for an author from their own website? 
rather than from from the uh, the publishers because certainly I wouldn't go looking to the publisher for for the book groups because the publisher does uh, a, a load of very different types of books. Why would why would I want to invest my time there when I could go to the author who I want to to discuss? You know the the types of book I want to discuss. I that's what I see that's more effective is is authors' websites that have maybe blogs and question answer sections where people can write to the author and and get some more information. I think that's probably going to be the way that things go, uh, unless there's some more effective way. Because if everybody's on Facebook, so what? How are you going to find anybody there um, to even talk to them about the book unless there's an organized uh, section where the, I, I don't know how they would do it, but there could be sections on um, book discussion groups or something like that. Yeah, certainly I, I, I agree there that um, that's where MySpace, I think, comes unstuck. Uh, if, if you went to, for example, I, I went to see Take That last night in concert. Uh, don't pass any judgment on ple- me, please. It was my <laughs> idea. Um, I think you were very brave to say it. Well, Sophie Ellis-Bexter was good. Um, but he take that had uh, two opening bands, and if you if you look on on their uh, their MySpace pages, you see a million people have linked to them. You know, including take that the band and a couple of other bands, and you know it you you just get this overload of people just joining up to to be friends with someone for the sake of it. You know, and that's why I I think publishers need to look at keeping a, a distance from from. You know, being so in there with with Facebook, with MySpace, because they can just get overloaded with with a lot of unnecessary rubbish. Yeah, I think there are there are two things. This my only previous kind of corporate experience of these things is some of the big American guitar makers have MySpace pages and so on. Just because they're hoping that's the kind the the people who are going to buy their products are going to be around looking around on MySpace and so on. But the other side of it, which is a bit deeper, I think, is is why these things have come into existence and why they're so popular. People are looking for like-minded individuals. They're looking to network. Friends is is a word that's curiously come to mean something else other than its traditional usage when you're talking about an online relationship that means just linking your name to a list. Um, But the problem with all of this, of course, is it's fairly low quality substitution for other better quality interactions. And I don't know how much trade people are going to generate from this. There is, it's like YouTube is swamped with, um, you know, corporate videos and so on. And there's just so much out there, as Rich says, but also it's undermining its original intent, which is this gathering together of like-minded individuals and people who wanted to network and trying to infiltrate them with something that it's not really intended for. If you're going to use a network to sell things, you've got to definitely got to be able to target the right area. And I believe, for instance, um, Captain Corelli's mandolin uh, was pushed in the UK by using a network of booksellers that they effectively said, you know, we're going to send out mystery shoppers. Um, and if you recommend Captain Corelli's mandolin, you're going to win a prize. Um, and they've got some fairly effective um, publicity that way uh, by hitting the right network. And I, I think what we're not sure about yet is how to use things like uh, Facebook and MySpace to hit those specific networks. Yeah, well, can we use things like um uh, Facebook and MySpace to do that. I mean, that's the great challenge, isn't it, really? People are trying to monetize like mad now. And the, the latest thing on Facebook, of course, is this thing called Beacon, which a lot of people are up in arms about. On the BBC website, uh, there is uh, an article about Facebook members have forced the social networking site to change the way a controversial ad system worked. 
uh, uh, referring to Beacon and the removal of it from the, using their information when they shop to, uh, you know, to force upon them other other things, other issues that they may want to to buy. You know, so so people don't really want all all of this being thrust in their face. You know, and yet in in the capitalist world, it's necessary in order for that to to keep propagating that way. I think the site that lends itself to this kind of uh, usage most readily is is something like Second Life. There, there's a Sony one. I can't remember what it's called now. Um, but people are making millions of dollars on Second Life. They are meeting. Are they are they real dollars or Linden dollars? Um, one man actually <laughs> built up a whole load of property and uh, activity in Second Life and sold it to people and made real money from Linden dollars. Hmm. And people are meeting and brokering deals in Second Life as well because you can literally buy space to advertise your product. You know, there are people's, there's galleries of people's artwork in. There are all manner of ways that people can actually put their products into this virtual world, which, you know, God knows how many million people are regularly in. So I think that's probably more likely a place where this kind of thing can be done. Just sort of widening this a little bit then, I mean, what, what do we think in terms of, um, you know, the internet generally as far as publishers, what publishers ought to be doing? I mean, I've been looking at one or two publishers' websites um, before we started uh, this evening. I'm not enormously impressed by any of them, really. There's a new effort by Penguin called Spinebreakers, which is, I'll just get it up now, it's um, www spinebreakers.co.uk which is clearly Penguin's attempt to, to reach the 13 to 18 year old market um, how do we feel publishers are doing generally in terms of you know, using the web um, I don't think they've really tapped into it I think it could be a great advertising tool if they link it into the idea of like ebooks if they have new authors that they're not quite ready to commit to you know, go out and do a print run or whatever. They could take sample chapters just to see what sort of response they get. This would be a good way of identifying new talent without quite as much risk to the author or the publisher. Uh, test the waters kind of a thing. That's a good idea, yeah. yeah. Donna? What I liked about Spinebreakers, just as a writer, since I write children's books is I, I got to see what the folks in my age range are looking for, what they like, what they don't like. You get some immediate feedback. So I think all publishers, websites are very useful for writers. Um, something that focuses on your age group is going to give you some feedback. Um, and certainly the publishers' websites themselves have the obvious use of seeing what their current list is, what their submission guidelines are, and things like that. So uh, I make a lot of use of publishers' websites. Yeah, but that's with the old writer's hat on, isn't it? I mean, every publisher's website I've looked at is very uh, web 1.0 possibly 0.5, actually. I mean, they're, they're all much of a muchness, I think. What do you think, Brian? I think the problem is, why, why would you go to a publisher's website? And yeah. those of you who know London uh, will know the big foils bookshop there, and they used to organise their books by publisher, which nobody could understand, because who goes in and says, <laughs> I, I desperately want a random house book today? Uh, and as long as publishers' websites are restricted to their own books, then they're going to be very limited. I think it's going to take a publisher to be really daring and saying, you know, perhaps we specialise in, I don't know, fantasy, and we're going to have a website that covers fantasy across all publishers, not just us. And you're much more likely then to get people in, I suspect, than if it's, you know, Random House Fantasy or, or whoever else is. Well, all you need is a venture capitalist behind you, Brian. I think you already made 100 million out of that. It's a great idea. <laughs> 
I think that the problem is again who's going to search by publisher. It's it doesn't make much sense unless that's you have that that one piece of information about a book, and you're looking for that, uh, or you're an aspiring writer looking for submission guidelines, or that you're looking for a competition to actually find out about books to buy. Um, I think that's a fairly low on the end of the range of people's usage of such a thing. The useful thing for buyers, I think, is where they host the authors' websites and they give some content for the authors themselves, for fans, and I think they could make more use of those by making more author-centric uh, sites uh, within their uh, own websites. You know, there's one um, realization that I think I've, um, I've had today about this, actually, and that is there's, there's, a, there's a massive difference between a community and a social network. And I think um, community sites like Litopia um, have much more durability and uh, we probably trust each other more in terms of opinion, judgments and so on um, than just a social network, which by its, its very definition really is a sort of, um, it's a transient thing. And of course the great fear from every social network is that um, their members will just up sticks and move on to the next big thing. Yeah, um, for, for, from my personal view of Facebook, it, it seems to be, though I use it and, and though occasionally I go on and I get messages and I talk to people, uh, it's it's more of the, the look at me, look, look at where I've got in my life at the moment, look at how many friends I've got, uh, listen to what I'm saying, why aren't you listening to what I'm saying? Yeah, there's the, the broader context of this, if you take the social networking and the blogging and all of those things, there's something quite encouraging in all of this. This the way people hunt, I know people who spend a, a good deal of their time reading people, other blogs and, and blogging themselves. It's, there is a huge thirst for, for narratives and stories there. That's what people are looking for when they're socially networking and they're reading blogs and they're doing these other things. They're actually looking for things that mean something to them and they can relate to and, and all the things that sounds like a bit of a dodgy segue, doesn't it? But it... It makes sense to me that that's what people are really after, isn't it? That they're after kind of narrative that chimes with their own experience as much as they're looking to people who uh, relate to them in, in a similar kind of social situation. As Philip Pullman says, tell them stories. That's right. Oh, Philip Pullman coming up in a moment. Thank you very much, Brains. Oh, let's, let's move on. Harry Potter. Harry Potter and the Magic Lawsuit. J.K. Rowling and Warner Brothers have filed a suit in Manhattan against Michigan publisher RDR Books to stop the company from releasing a book based on material from a Harry Potter fan site. Now, the lawsuit claims that RDR title Harry Potter Lexicon will infringe on JK's intellectual property rights, but JK has herself praised the efforts of fan site creators over the years, including this particular site and several speculative books about Harry Potter's world, some also written by fan site creators, have already been published. The thing is this, JK wants to produce her own definitive Harry Potter encyclopedia, and she says, I quote, I cannot approve of companion books or encyclopedias that seek to preempt my definitive Potter reference book for their author's personal gain. Okay, panel, what do we think about this? Donna, this is right up your street. Well, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but my, my number one thought is, hasn't that ship already sailed? I found at least 27 books with just a, a brief search 
that uh, analyze Harry Potter, including one called an unofficial Harry Potter encyclopedia by a woman named Christina uh, Benson. And uh, I think that she's allowed these kinds of books to proliferate, and I, I think she's going to have some troubles enforcing it. Um, there's uh, certainly going to be some interesting issues that come out of, if it really goes to trial. For instance, um, she did trademark uh, Harry Potter, the name, and I wonder how she did it because there was another character called Harry Potter in a 1986 movie called Troll. Yes, of course. Who was a dark-haired, ordinary uh, kid who discovered magic and battled a troll. So I think there's going to be some real interesting issues that, that come up about originality here too. If it was me, if it was my work, then uh, I think I'd be in a, a similar view to J.K. Uh, uh, in that you know it, it is my property, and though I've allowed them to discuss and paste their their view of of encyclopedic elements into their website, that's all well and good. You know, it's all about propagating information and creating that community aspect, giving people to focus on things together. Um, that they would then want to turn that into a publishable book and then get money from it. I, I disagree with that because it's not their work and they shouldn't be allowed. But then, as Donna said, other people have already got away with doing that. And there's always the aspect that J.K. Rowling has made scoppingly huge amounts of money. Why does she need to make any more? Um, it's crazy. Let me ask this. If this were an author who hadn't made a huge ton of money, just some poor author struggling along, <laughs> at a character catch-on. Yeah. Don't they have the right to protect their future plans for those characters? Because I think some of the uh, unofficial books have not really been encyclopedias. They've been analysis books. Whereas what J.K. is planning is a definitive encyclopedia. So, I, you know, on the one hand, yeah, she's made all this money and everything, but on the other, she still has characters in a world to, to imagine there. And I, I can see her wanting to protect that. I mean, that's the whole point of copyright in the beginning. From my viewpoint, I, I think absolutely people ought to be allowed to do this. I mean, if I was writing something and somebody wanted to write a book about my characters, I would be delighted, to be honest, because it means that people are interested in them. If you're going to say you can't do this, you might as well also say you can't write biographies, because surely people own their own lives even more than they own a character. And the fact is, you know, biography is an accepted way of doing it. You can't write history, surely, because, you know, countries ought to be able to protect themselves from people writing about them. It becomes ludicrous. And I think you can't stop people writing about your characters telling people about what you've done. What you can stop, arguably, is people, uh, say, writing a new Harry Potter book. That's a totally different thing. But I, I really can't see that it, it's legitimate to say people can't write about what you've done, whether it's an encyclopedia or analysis. It's not, it's not passing off, is it? I mean, that's, that's one of the tests, is if people would be really confused. And um, no one's really, no one surely is going to think that, that J.K. herself has written the Harry Potter lexicon. And, I mean, the point you're making, Brian, really, is that any, any publications like this would only serve to broaden the market. Mm, absolutely. The only equivalent that I can think of is the... Um this took take place over a much longer period of time, is, was the growth of Tolkien encyclopedias and analyses and interpretations mm. and so on. There are a huge number out there, but that, their publication, I, I 
devoured them avidly as, as a younger kind of Tolkien fan. Um, but none of those put off the Tolkien diehards from buying all of the Christopher Tolkien official you know, story histories and the complete history and all of those things that were then endorsed by the Tolkien estate. You know, the, the sales of those were not dented at all, quite the opposite. They were probably enhanced by these snippets and suggestions, particularly as most of, you know, the earlier encyclopedias on Tolkien were written prior to the pu publication of the Silmarillion. So there was a huge amount of guesswork from, you know, the original texts that was then filled in later. And so I agree with Brian. I think it's people have a right to celebrate stuff they enjoy and it's not passing off. They're not trying to pretend it's their work. What she's saying is she doesn't want people um, doing this for their author's personal gain. But that's really why authors, um, well, one of the reasons authors write books, though, isn't it? Or am I being cynical? No, I, 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 think, the love. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fair to have a reference work. Fair use is a, is a term that is used for a reference book that is a, a commentary. Now, it's more than a smattering, certainly, of her work, but they're not trying to pretend to be her, or it's not fan fiction in that they're not creating new plots with the characters or new ideas using the characters. They're just analyzing the work. My concern on this, though is where does the line blur between protecting work that you're still working on? I mean, obviously, she has new material she wants to bring into this encyclopedia and everything. So where, where is the line? And, and if there is no line, why do we bother with copyrights to protect creative rights to begin with? Good point. Well, that's, that's where they, they came unstuck in the uh, Da Vinci Code uh, fiasco, isn't it? That, that they said that... Oh, that's another valid good idea. point. I mean... The Holy Blood, Holy Grail, Da Vinci Code issue. Sure, yeah. that, that's a good point, Brian. But a book analyzing why Harry Potter works and the ins and outs of the Harry Potter phenomenon doesn't necessarily affect the market for the Harry Potter fiction books. And also, if you um, give due credit to your sources, you generally escape most of uh, the worst wrath. If you explain that this is the original material represented for people's, uh, you know, careful perusal and you're not claiming it's your own you're not necessarily infringing copyright are well, you we will see we'll see thank you very much the u.s catholic league has warned parents that philip pullman's new film the golden compass which is based on his book northern lights promotes atheism and denigrates christianity and they're calling for people to boycott it pullman's hit back at them saying i'm a storyteller if i wanted to send a message i would have written a sermon now, writers need to be passionate about their subjects. And part of a writer's job, surely, is to provoke a reaction and to make people think. And what I want to know is, to what extent is it permissible for an author to propagandize to children through his or her writing? How far should we self-censor? And how much should parents intervene in their, parent, in their children's reading? I really have a real problem with the It Takes a Village concept that's kind of grown up over the years where it's kind of okay I'm going to have the child and the rest of you raise it I think what it comes down to is that it's up to the parents you know it, it's entirely a parent's responsibility to see what their child is reading what they're they're watching on TV what video games they're playing and if a parent feels they should censor it a little until the child is of age 
that's a parent's prerogative. Now, I don't have, I really don't like the idea of anyone dictating, mandating, otherwise be it government or the Catholic League or whatever. I think it should be an individual parent's decision as to what's best for their child. I don't think someone should be telling the parent that you can't do this. Yeah, it's a tricky one because on the one hand, um, there is, you know, people should be exposed to opinions and ideas. On the other hand, people have agendas and many people disagree with them. The difficulty for any writer, I think, is to find a way of getting ideas across and allowing people the space to form their own views. That's my personal opinion. I think writing is all about expressing our personal feelings and beliefs. So if we start self-censoring because someone might not like it, well, then I think that it hinders our ability to write effectively and to write well. Oh, I don't think a writer has to self-censor. I think writers write what's in their head, what's in their heart. If someone doesn't like what you write, then don't read it. But I don't think someone should tell someone else not to read your work. That's what I'm getting at is it's, it should be your choice. It should not be mandated by any outside influence. Um, Certainly not a good I, I just have a real problem with censorship of any kind. But on the other hand, I, I really don't think other people should be telling parents what their children should be doing. It's the parents' call. So the parents need not to take pretext, responsibility. Certainly Sorry? not on the pretext of uh, politics or, or religion. Absolutely not. Yeah, well, I don't know. Might... I found the whole hubbub very helpful because the very nature of the, the groups that are against this movie has made me want to take my kids to see it. Absolutely. I mean, the, the books, good books are absolutely brilliant. <laughs> and uh, as Pullman says, it's just about telling a story. Uh, and though... He has put in the elements of uh, the the anti-magisterium. I won't call it anti-Christian because it, it is, as he says, it's all about anti-power. It's all about people taking control and and being all powerful and then dictating what people can do and what people can see. And the the Catholic League have you know really just fallen into the same trap that they, they are just taking on the mantle of the magisterium by their own actions of saying, you can't see this because it preaches atheism and it's awful. It's, it's just exactly what Pullman has written. And they are, they are just falling into the trap of presenting his own arguments. I think this sort of thing is self-correcting to an extent because, to be honest, if somebody does write a preachy book... It's not going to sell well. People aren't going to be interested. They want the stories. They're not interested in preaching. And I, I have to say, I mean, from my point of view, if you take the attitude, you can't put a, a, a sort of religious viewpoint across. You're going to start saying, okay, we're not we're going to allow Greek myths or we're not going to allow fantasies. Yeah. We don't have our world systems or anything of that sort. Well, the problem is that, that what, what they're saying, I think, is it's a subtle book and by um, turning it into a fantastic um, whiz-bang film with amazing special effects and a really emotionally gripping story that actually underneath the surface um, a message is being sent to the child subconsciously in the same way actually I suppose that you could say on the other side of the coin that the Chronicles of Narnia did too um, which I remember when I was a kid you know were just amazing sort of a, a adventure stories from the beginning and then as you slowly got through the books, or perhaps got a little bit older, you realised that a religious message was being sent too. And it was a pretty, it's a fairly blunt one, as I recall. I remember enjoying them enormously and getting to the last one, and that fantastic um, climax where everybody, how great, everybody had been killed in a 
train crash and they'd gone to heaven. Wasn't that good? Yeah. Except for the one who wore makeup and liked boys, and she'd <laughs> gone to hell. And that stuck with me as as the most facile use of storytelling to get a point, like slap you around the face with a big wet fish, a la Monty Python, with this idea. And it it it, it, it exactly as Brian says, it causes you to reject it out of hand because it's so daft. But it it does some people, but other other children it may not have done. It, it, it no, I didn't pick up pick up on that at all, and certainly you ruined the the end of the series for me. So I'm going to put that to the side and move on to something else. <laughs> uh, coming coming from a, a family of, I, I guess my parents were, were Protestant. They they didn't bring me up to uh, be religious in any way. They let me make my own choices. Um, they didn't have me christened because they felt that if if I felt the time was right, then I would make that choice for myself. And they've let me read what I like. They've let me form my own decisions upon politics, upon religion, upon news, upon journalism. And I, I guess, in, in a way, I, I'm slightly naive to certain aspects of religion and how that integrates with culture, because I've never been in that situation. So for me, books like The Chronicles of Narnia, I, I never picked up on any allusions to the, the Christ story. So are we saying that propaganda disguised as an adventure story, whatever it is, whether it's pro-religious or it's anti-religious, are we saying that's okay? I think uh, people will draw their lines where they will. Imagine if somebody in, in a few years' time wrote this fantastic adventure story about a young boy named Adolf who decided he was going to change the world yeah. and made it into a big adventure that- story and he had this tragic ending and it was misunderstood and all the rest of it. Is that okay? Would you give well, in, that to in your the, child? In the book- in the book, do you think he'd bleach his hair? <laughs> <laughs> probably. He'd probably okay. say, look back at the Charlie Chaplin thing and possibly change a few bits. I don't know. Again, I, I think it comes down to experience and what you read into a book and what you get out of it. I mean, there was a, an article written years ago about The Wizard of Oz and how it was basically a, a very veiled attempt to promote the populist movement in the United States, uh, you know, gold standard instead of silver standard, the Tin Woodman represented the growth of industrialization, on and on and on, and <laughs> L. Frank Baum, when he wrote The Wizard of Oz, wrote it simply because European fairy tales he thought were too frightening for children. He wanted a, a modern fairy tale for them, so it's... Uh, same thing with with uh, other books that they you know analyzed read things into children children are, are fun a lot of times they'll just take things at face value and the deep message goes right over their head so I think it does come back to the parents in in this in the same frame there is the pro Christian book series Left Behind by uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins yeah, and huge if yeah. anything was religious propaganda that series. Absolutely. You, you eat, you're either Christian and you do the right thing or you are going to hell regardless. Well, that's the very modern Christian view, isn't it? But I think the point is about the, the broader notion of propaganda. You know, 1984 is a, is a, a propagandist book in many ways. You know, Animal Farm uh, and some of these great books, uh, Brave New World, they all put across world views that we should challenge and question. And quite rightly so. Should they be banned also? Or should they be read? I mean, there are classic books out there that people feel are very important but fall into this kind of uh, vague area of propaganda, aren't they? So the argument we should be having is not um, should authors be sticking subtle propaganda into their books, but that should 
um, organizations such as the Catholic League, rather than trying to ban them, be saying, let's talk about it, let's have open discussions, let's have seminars, let's get people involved in reading this book, uh, relating it to our own text, the Bible, uh, whatever, and actually talk about the, the nature of things and what we believe and why we believe that, that that is the wrong view, rather than just coming in and saying, don't do that because if you read it, then you'll become an atheist and your faith wasn't really that strong anyway. So, oh, hang on a minute, that puts faith and belief into complete rubbish. Um, so let's <laughs> into prison because you can't... I think you should take that viewpoint to the next their next meeting in the deep woods of Louisiana and suggest they relate it to the Bible and have a discussion and uh, see what happens. Could be no, good thank fun. You. No, sure. no, don't pick on Louisiana. Actually, kind of fun down there. <laughs> it is. It is. I can testify to that. <laughs> right, chaps. That's um. That's fantastic. Now, I'm, I want to, everyone please to tell me what they've been reading recently, what they can recommend that they've been reading, or maybe what they've been watching as far as films are concerned, or even listening to as audio books. Um, Brian, do you want to kick off? Sure. I'm reading two books at the moment. One, funnily enough, is the third of Philip Pullman's His Dark Material books, uh, The Amber Spyglass. I thought I'd reread, reread the trilogy because of the movie. I have to say, this book I, I'm not thrilled about. The first time around, I, I remember, looking back, I thought the whole series was, was a bit dull. And I realise now it was because of this third book. The first book is absolutely fantastic. Um, the one that the movie's been made of. But by the time you get to the third one, frankly, he is getting into preachy mode a bit, mm. and it's just a bit slow, and I, I I'm not that thrilled with it. He's doing a C.S. Lewis. Yeah. The, mm. the other book I'm reading, totally different and actually very relevant to your last week's discussion, is a book called Print is Dead by Jeff Gomez, oh. um, which is arguing, as you might suggest, uh, uh, as the title suggests, uh, uh, that, that the time has come uh, to wean ourselves off books, although, as the author says himself, it's slightly ironic. Actually <laughs> I'm reading. Yeah, it um, kind of contradicts himself on the first sentence. Yeah. It, it's looking quite good, though, I have to say that. Can I throw in one recommendation? Of course. Well? Yeah. Uh, that recommendation? Uh, it's, it's actually not an old book. It's just out this year, and it's actually not doing badly either. So, in a sense, it's a strange sleeper. But I'll tell you why in a second. It's Neil Gaiman's Fragile Things, uh, which is a collection of stories. And as I think you mentioned last week, Peter, I really don't understand why short stories are considered guaranteed failures by publishers. Because I love them. Not, I know lots of people that love them, but they just don't seem to sell. But this is one you really ought to go through. It's an absolutely brilliant collection of short stories. And Gaiman's one of the few people who can challenge um, Gene Wolfe, the, the American veteran writer, who is the absolute expert on short stories. It's really an absolute joy. What was the title again? It's Fragile Things. Beverly, would you like to um, offer any uh, items for our delectation? Certainly. At the moment, I'm reading Terry Pratchett, Thud, which is one of the Thud, T-H-U-D. I'm sorry, I thought that was a comment. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's the title of the book. It's just one of Pratchett's fun Discworld novels. Uh, For recommendation this week, I'm going to go back to the old days again and recommend Carbonell, King of the Cats. Oh, I love that. Yo, I adore it. It's uh, it's an old book, but it, it's it's just a great story. This ten-year-old Rosemary Brown buys a twiggy broom and a cat from a strange old woman. Yeah. Broom turns out to be a witch's broom, and the cat is the exiled king of the cats. So the whole story involves Rosemary and her friend John while they try to help Carbonell regain his kingdom. Uh, it should really appeal to any Harry Potter fans. Uh, I suspect a lot of little girls would love this book. 
I think that's a fantastic recommendation, Bev. Um, actually, you've taken me straight back to, to my childhood. Um, is, is the copy you've got a new one? Is it still in print, you know? Um, no, but it's that's the one nice thing about Barnes & Noble with the old book print. You can type in any title or author. I'll just bring up a whole slew of them so you can get a reader's copy, first edition. It, it gives you a good, broad range of, of books to purchase. So uh, just type in Barbara Slay or Carbonell, and it'll be there. That's fantastic. Um, Donna? I'm reading Janet Ivanovich's How I Write. Um, it's about developing memorable characters and great plots. And I'm also uh, using the Marshall Plan for Novel Writing by Evan Marshall. Um, and he's an agent slash editor slash novelist. And he breaks down the writing process into manageable steps. Uh, my sleeper of the week would be Ink Spell by Cornelia Funke. Uh, she's a, uh, it's a story about a storyteller who can make characters literally come alive. And isn't that what we really all want? Mm. It's great fun, and it's definitely not only for children. Brilliant. Rich. Um, I've been reading uh, The Princess Bride by uh, William Goldman. I absolutely love the film. My name is Inigo Montoya. Yeah. I killed my father. <laughs> Uh, absolutely brilliant. You know, the, the fantasy, the swashbuckling, and obviously the, the postmodern self-referencing of, of the book, pretending to be written by somebody else back in the 1500s. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, and a great film too. Absolutely, yes. And Dave? Yeah, um, well, first thing, second that on The Princess Bride, or third it. Wonderful. Um, but yeah, I'm currently rereading One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, which mm. I go back to periodically because it's just a fantastic read and it's there are so many lessons in there and so many things to um, comment on and think about uh, and it's a great book. I was introduced to it at school where in the old days when a teacher said you should know about this book and just read it to us because we should know about it. Nothing to do with exams or curricula or anything like that and it stuck with me as a, as a fantastic book and I go back to it now and again and my recommendation would be another old one which would be Cannery Row by Steinbeck which right. is fantastic elegiac book that you just lose yourself in and when you've read it it's as if you've actually been there. It's fantastic stuff. That's brilliant. And um, I didn't say anything last week, um, mainly because I forgot to, actually. But um, this week, I, I just want to mention, I'm listening to an audio book. I'm kind of slowly getting into the whole idea of audio books. They're in some trouble in, in the UK. The audio book market apparently is, is declining. They're wondering how they can stimulate it. I find that rather difficult to believe, actually. But um, I'm listening to something called It's Superman by Tom DeHaven, read by Scott Brick. It's a good... Um, 16, 17 hours to listen to, unfortunately, which means that you know, my listening is quite punctuated. But I, I'm enjoying it a lot, more than I expected I would. Um, Superman is a character I've never felt at all interested by. I think it's one of the least interesting of all the superheroes, incredibly one-dimensional. Um, Tom DeHaven really fleshes the characters out and, and brings them alive. I think it's um, a sort of classic textbook example of how an author can really get underneath um, initially fairly unpromising material and um, inject uh, life, breathe life into the character. And he evokes the, the ear era of uh, 1920s, 1930s uh, New York um, brilliantly. So I'm really enjoying that. Guys, thank you so much for your time. Um, I think it's been another brilliant show and I um, look forward to speaking to you next week. Thanks. Take care, Peter. Thank Bye, you. everyone. And that wraps it up for this week. Thank you, panel, for being so brainy. On the Latopia After Dark team this week were... 
Donna Borman, Dave Bartram, Brian Clegg, Beverly Gray and Richard Howard. You can find show notes for this episode at www.litopia.com slash podcast. And we welcome your reactions, comments and feedback either by email or mp3 file to podcast at litopia.com. We'll see you next week. <laughs>